Support for this podcast and the following message comes from SmartWater. Not satisfied being like other brands, SmartWater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. SmartWater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. And I'm really excited this week to have one of my favorite documentary filmmakers, Steve James. He's here with his new star series, 10 Parts, America to Me. So America to Me takes place in the city of Oak Park, Illinois, at Oak Park and River Forest High School. It's a suburb of Chicago. It's a town that really prides itself on its diversity, on its openness to people of all different races and religions and things like that. But what is great about this documentary is how James sort of underscores the ways that there's still this inequality. There's still this inequity in education and income levels and things like that in this school. And he really kind of talks about the dark sides of white progressivism, if you will, of well-meaning white people like your host who really like want to be a part of the solution to problems that are sort of rooted in race and yet often inadvertently make things worse. There are moments in this documentary that made my skin crawl, both because I felt so deeply for the students who were having to go through them, but also because I recognized in them some of the times when I've tried to be helpful and good and nice and just ended up coming off as condescending. It's really a great documentary in that regard. Here's a clip from the trailer. In this community, there are levels of diversity, but we mentioned race, all hell breaks loose. The racial disparities that concerned us are essentially unchanged. We're preparing our black students less well to compete with their peers. Where is the sense of urgency? We are failing our kids every single day. My white friends, they don't even know who Malcolm X is, don't know who Biggie Smalls is. I don't have black friends. I have black acquaintances. It's so white. James is one of my favorite documentary filmmakers and has been for a long time. He is perhaps still most famous for the 1994 film Hoop Dreams, one of the great films of all time about two young students who sort of pin their hopes on basketball. And it's a really wonderful examination of race and class in America. He's very interested in talking about race, which is something that we discuss in this episode, but he's made films about all manner of subjects. He made the film Stevie, which is a documentary about him reconnecting with a young boy he had been a big brother to. He made the Oscar-nominated film Abacus, which is about the only bank that suffered legal consequences for the 2008 recession. He made the movie The Interrupters, which is a great movie about sort of dealing with issues of gang violence. He's really had just a wonderful career. Every one of his movies... I look forward to with great anticipation. And America, to me, is, I think, one of the great TV series of the summer, the fall. It airs on Stars at 10 p.m. on Sundays. And if you want to check out the episodes that have already aired, they're available on Stars' various streaming platforms and its website. Steve sat down with me to talk about making this film, to talk about setting a story in the community where he lives, and to talk about how, as a white filmmaker, he approaches questions of thinking and making movies about race. It's just really a great and illuminating conversation, and thank you for sticking around. Thank you for listening to it. Steve James, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So tell me about Oak Park, the neighborhood 
and Oak Park and River Forest High School and then why you chose to set your story there. What's what's the significance of, of that to you? Oak Park is a historic old suburb that sits right on the western edge of the city of Chicago. It's where Frank Lloyd Wright had his studio and built a bunch of homes, none of which I've ever lived in, as well as it's where Ernest Hemingway was born. But it has this proud, much more recent history of being this incredibly progressive and diverse community and one that has a great public school system. And yet it has, for decades, sort of struggled to raise the achievement level of its black students. Um, There have been inequities between white students and black students. And so that's the community. I live there. And when I set out to do this film, I thought, we, we have seen so many stories of public high schools in poor neighborhoods with little funding, gang violence, extreme poverty. But where are the stories of schools like Oak Park River Forest High School, where a lot of those variables don't come into play, and yet there are failures, there are obstacles to achievement and to racial equity. You have a number of times in your career looked at America through the lens of education, in essence, of high school students, of people who are on the precipice of adulthood. What is it that makes that a good filter to look at this country through? Young people represent the future, as is often said. And I think that young people often find themselves you know, grappling with and trying to define who they are and, and what this world is that they're in, inheriting or living in. And so I think it is a, pre, a pretty great perspective to, um, to get. And this particular generation that, that is represented in America to me, I, I don't know, I'm deeply impressed with them because it's not like past generations that I've filmed with or uh, have known, you know, because I have kids, are not aware and haven't been aware they are. But this generation has a, a, a kind of commitment to change that I don't think we've seen for a while and, and, a, and a boldness and a, and a willingness to take on authority right. uh, in a way that I don't think we've seen for a while. Right, right. In the first episode, there's a scene where a teacher is encouraging kids to write down who they are and then how they think the world sees them and things like that. And like it, there's just such a forthrightness from one of the students you're following around. He says, you know, I'm a, I'm a biracial heterosexual male. And I'm just like, when I was his age, like, yeah, I was cognizant of those labels, but I would like never have thought to like apply them. Like, were you sort of impressed by that? Yeah, I was very impressed by it. um, A kind of owning of identity that you see with kids and, and in, you know, later episodes, you meet uh, Shanti, for example, who's a black Vietnamese young woman who uh, not only is, is dealing with those two aspects of her identity, but also with questions about gender. And she, she speaks forthrightly about it. And later in the episode, that comes to the fore more. Kendale, uh, you meet, who is a kid who is in band, and most of his friends from band are white. And yet he's on the wrestling team, which is mostly black and Latino, and he's trying to sort of navigate those two worlds and and very much aware of that navigation, not just struggling with it and can't put a label on it or or explain it, but he can't explain it. 
as somebody who has raised children, like what do you say is sort of like this feels like a shift to me. Um, granted, I grew up in a very small rural white community, so maybe we just didn't think about these labels <laughs> in that way. But like, I mean, there were Native Americans in my community and like we didn't really talk about race in the way that I think kids do today. So what do you sort of attribute that more openness, that more interest in identity that that has arisen? I mean, I think we're, we're living at a particularly troubled time. And, and I think the fact that um, I think social media and the internet have played a role in the dissemination of just how hard the time is, right? I mean, uh, police violence against um, black people, if it happens in any city, you know, nowadays in certain police departments, they have body cams, so it'll be captured that way. But if it's not, someone's got it. Someone's videotaped it. And then it's not just confined to that city. It becomes it becomes a national story. I think there's just a, a more of a, a, of a sense of self-awareness and trying to define oneself when you are engaged in social media. And that, I think, encourages reflection on who you are. And I think people want to be heard. I think people have always wanted to be heard in a way, um, but there was no means to be heard. And nowadays, you don't have to wait for a documentary to discover you to be heard. Yeah. <laughs> you can just be heard. And so I think all of those things factor into a kind of increased sophistication and understanding that we benefit from um, as filmmakers, but we as society, I think, are going to benefit from that. I'm really interested in the transparency you sort of bring to the idea that your kids went to school here. Um, I assume you're a member of this neighborhood. Like in the very early going of the first episode, there's like a vote to whether this project is, you know, <laughs> going to continue. <laughs> right. Like you really get into the nuts and bolts of how this exists. But did you think that was sort of necessary to, I guess, lay bare what you brought to this project, like your own biases, your own, I, I live in this area, you know? You know, this is not a film about me uh, or my family um, or my experience in Oak Park. But all those things informed the film and, and wanted to make sure that that's owned at the beginning, that you understand that, that I am a member of the community, that you understand that there was genuine resistance to the film being made, and that will reverberate through the film. We will come back to that issue later in the series as well. And so... You know, I think just, yeah, I think that kind of transparency increasingly in my work over the years has been something that I, that I feel is, is, is important. I did a film some years ago for the 30 for 30 series called No Crossover, The Trial of Allen Iverson, where I went back to my hometown in Virginia, where he's from and I'm from, to look at this racial bowling alley brawl. And, and I, again, engaged in a kind of transparency about my motives for going back and what and who I was in that community, not just who Alan Iverson was. Mm, mm, interesting. I do also like that the kids will often like come up with excuses for why they're being followed by cameras. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, um, they they have all these points of references, right? That are yeah. that are generally reality television. Yeah, you know, and I think that's part of what I think that's part of what makes made a number of our kids receptive to the idea of being in the series is is that they they had that frame of reference of reality television now. Uh, in some cases, they didn't realize that that's not we're not doing reality television, and 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 so what's ultimately being asked is more honest and revealing than reality television is, mm -hmm. and you know there were some struggles around that. Has has that gotten different over the course of your career that that people are more open to the idea of cameras are going to be in their lives? I think so for mm -hmm. sure they're more open, and I think for the most part that's a good thing because it, it's not a big deal. 
to have a camera around. Um, but it can lead to a kind of posture that you have to break through because they're performing mm-hmm. more. Um, because they know that reality television is all performance. I mean, you know, they even if they don't give it a lot of thought, they know, like, you know, as a colleague of mine says, there's nothing actually real in reality television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell tell me about choosing the subjects that you chose to follow around in the film. Like someone like Charles, who's this really gregarious student who's kind of in the center of a lot of these stories. So he's he's like a natural on camera and he just seems to really turn on when the camera's there. But there's always going to be kids like that. But you also went to find kids who aren't like that. How do you sort of build a portrait of them when it takes a little more drawing out to get them to open up? It's essential that we tell stories of people in general, but in this case, kids who are not the usual suspects Mm -hmm. in documentaries, because you're right. Oftentimes we as documentary filmmakers will gravitate to the outgoing, the really charismatic people or someone who's really angry, but that makes them charismatic or someone who's really funny like Charles is. And we absolutely wanted those those kids in the film too, but it was really important to have someone like Terrence, who is a special ed kid. He's got some learning disabilities that he's struggling with, and he is extremely quiet. He's almost like a ghost in the school. I followed Terrence's story in the series. I felt personally that it, it was vitally important because I remember my high school years um, – It was vitally important that we represent the full range of what it means to be a student in high school and then in in this case, of course, a kid of color in, in that environment. I'm Charlie Hall. And I'm Dave Tack. We're the hosts of Polygon's Quality Control. Our show is a lot of things to a lot of people. It's our chance to talk about the best new video games with the folks who play them first. It's a place to dissect the latest movies and TV shows. It's our opportunity to get out from behind the keyboard and tell you what we think. In person, every week. The world of entertainment moves fast. Quality Control helps you keep pace. Find us for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. My guest is Steve James. He's the director behind so many of my favorite movies, uh, The Interrupters and Stevie and, of course, Hoop Dreams. He's now doing America to Me. It's for stars. It's a 10-part documentary look at one year in the life of a high school. How did you go about finding the subjects? Because it sounds like there was a pretty compressed time frame from when you were approved to when you actually started <laughs> shooting. So yeah. You know, we had a sense that that approval was going to happen at a certain point, but you're right, it still happened pretty compressed time. We started interviewing kids. We put out the word in the community that we were looking for potential subjects for this series, and it was going to be a series that looked at race and achievement in the high school. And, you know, we beat the bushes some, and then some people, some teachers personally recommended to kids, like, hey, I think this would be of interest to you. And so myself and producer John Condney um, started conducting these intake interviews, and we probably did about 40 of them. Mm. And we met a, a, a lot of incredible kids, and then we kind of narrowed that down to about a dozen kids that we thought were the best candidates to consider. And then I brought the segment directors into the process, and they all looked at the, the tapes and then we had a big meeting and we, we talked about who, who we were interested in personally and who we felt was necessary to be in the series. And out of that, we selected seven kids to start. 
but I knew that we were going to be adding kids and I didn't want to, I didn't, I wanted to leave room for that. So, so we eventually added five kids along the way. When you're working on a project like this or a project like, like hoop dreams, you know, where you know you're going to be doing stuff over a period of time, but you also just have the bare nugget of a premise almost. You don't have a story. You don't know. Yeah. Like how soon does the story start to suggest itself, the through line, if you will? Yeah. Well, in this case, there is no single through line. And, and that, that's part of what was exciting about it. I mean, I've always viewed my documentary filmmaking as, you know, as a true sort of journey, uh, an act of discovery, if you will, that, yes, you start out with uh, what you hope is a really solid provocative idea of what you're after in terms of why you're doing this. But then I think it's all about following the stories where they lead you organically and not trying to sort of shoehorn them or fit them into some preconceived notion of what you think the story should be. And that's what we did. That's what we did here. But, you, you know, we knew certain things. We knew that it was going to be a single school year and that we were going to try and document that year, which would include all of the usual kind of um, – milestones of a school year, whether it's the, you know, the homecoming football game or the first school dance or prom or, you know, whatever. And we decided we wanted to have those kind of bigger set piece scenes be anchors for each episode of the series. Um, Beyond that, structurally, it was sort of like, we're going to follow these stories. We're going to see where they lead. We know we want to turn the lens, not just on our kids and their families, but on the school as an institution. So I showed up at every school board meeting and a bunch of committee meetings, and boy, was that painful to shoot. But but we got important stuff out of that. We knew we didn't want to ignore, like, the security staff, or the cafeteria staff, and there are sections devoted to both those groups of individuals and how they look at, at the way the school treats them. And yeah. it's very revealing. What was exciting to you about having 10 episodes? And I've only seen, <laughs> I've only seen three, but they are distinct episodes. Yeah. It's not like, it's not just a 10 hour thing. It's right. like each hour is its own thing. And yeah. I'm like, tell me about what was interesting about finding those individual stories. <laughs> it was, I mean, it's, it's sort of like that guy on the old Ed Sullivan show that has uh, a bunch of plates spinning, <laughs> you know, that act. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it felt like. I mean, it felt like that from a shooting standpoint, but it especially felt that, like that once we got into editing. And I had an incredible editing team. We really had to craft the series as it unfolds over 10 episodes and find ways to chart each of the kids' stories and then add kids and chart their stories in a way that hopefully was coherent right. and dramatic and compelling. Right. And and I, I feel really good about that I feel like what you know whatever the film's strengths or weaknesses it was it was a pretty significant achievement to go this broadly and this deeply into a school and the kids we followed and have that kind of work across 10 episodes but that's of course how we ended up with 10 episodes i mean originally it was going to be 6 episodes in my mind, soon into that process, I thought, well, maybe we could get eight. Uh, and then when it got to 10, I was told that that's where it had to end. <laughs> and that was a good call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, like how, do you, um, how do you decide when it's enough? Because you're somebody who famously has often shot a lot. And yeah, and made, and made long films. Yeah, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
let's put it this way. No one was surprised that we ended up at 10 hours with me. Okay. <laughs> it was like, you know, um, we shot 13 to 1400 hours, uh, over the school year. Wow. I calculated that out and between myself and the, uh, three segment producers, Kevin Shaw, Bing Lu, and Rebecca Parrish, it meant that this isn't literally true, but it meant that essentially on average, we were in school, longer than the average school day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we weren't always in school. We were at home. We were at events. But but that's a lot of footage. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I just knew that, that this was going to be a, a monstrous storytelling challenge. But it's also, like I say, it was, it's, it's among the most exciting storytelling challenges. Because the thing about a series like this is, is that there are certain things that are chronologically necessary – essentially, but then how you go and who is in what episode and who's in another episode and how you go from story to story is is an open question. Yeah. And that can be liberating. It can also be, um, you know, make you pull your hair out, but, but it's ultimately a, a, a sort of great creative challenge. We talk about this a lot now um, when white journalists, white documentarians right. go into communities of color or racially diverse communities right. and tell stories about people of color. Certainly in a documentary, you're using their words a lot yes. more than you're trying to write words for them. So yes. you have like sort of that, but also yeah. how do you correct for what you don't know, what you can't know, right. you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I've done, as you know, a number of films over the years where I am truly an outsider um, in a situation, Hoop Dreams, The Interrupters, but even Stevie, even though it was white people, it was a part of America that I had no personal real history with, except that I was his big brother, you know, um, back in the day. Uh, in this case, I knew a couple of things going in. One is, this is my community. Mm -hmm. I mean, Oak Park, I've lived there for a long time. My kids went to the school. So even though I'm white and it is a diverse community, it is still my community. But secondly, I didn't feel like even that was enough to allow me to just go in and try and tell this story by myself or, you know, as a film. You never do it by yourself, but be be the sole sort of creative um, directing person in this situation. I knew early on that I wanted to have a diverse team and I wanted to have some filmmakers who were considerably younger than me mm -hmm. and closer to the age of our subjects because I just figured for every reason that would make this a, a more honest and true and authentic um, work and, and would make a level of comfort for the kids um, that I couldn't provide even though I feel like I do pretty well on relating to kind of everybody I film. And so all of those things are a factor in this series that I think are vitally important and contribute greatly to the end product of, of what this series is. But, but I think that essentially my approach myself over the years has always been to recognize from the get-go that I don't really know anything. Mm -hmm. No matter how much I may think I know, I don't really know much of anything. And I've done enough films about race now that I tend have a tendency to think I know – a fair amount about the topic. Mm -hmm. But doing this series, I realized just how little I knew. And I think that's important for filmmakers to understand and take to heart as they go into the process, because then that allows you, I think, to give yourself over to your subjects and the experiences that they have and not bring your baggage and expectations to it. We're in an era when documentaries, when 
movie theaters on TV are seem to be having a real boom. You know, there's a yeah. lot of them that are really taking off. You're somebody who, you know, you've you made Hoop Dreams. You uh, Abacus was nominated for an Oscar. Like, is it easier to get funding now or is it still like a struggle <laughs> to get funding when you're going to make a project? Well, I'm probably not the best person to ask because <laughs> I've I've had good fortune. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've earned that um, right, I think, over the years with the work. But but I am an, I am one of those people in the doc world that not always, but but most always have been able. If I if there's something I want to do, I've been able to find the support to do it. And I am a bargain. I I give a lot for little, <laughs> um, but but still, I am in a position to to be able to make films I want to make. I think that um, I think there's no question that there is more funding than ever and more opportunities. Um, for distribution than ever because of of television and streaming. But there are also many, many, many more people trying to do this than ever. And so I think that for there are a lot of filmmakers who are younger than me and, and not as far along in their career for whom that struggle remains is probably just about the same as it was when I was younger yeah. with one important difference. Mm. The technology allows you now to make films for free <laughs> yeah. that could actually be played in a, on a network or broadcast or play in theaters and be technically acceptable for that. When I started out, you know, documentaries were still mostly being made on film. The ones that got into theaters were all on film. And video was at a state that, first of all, it, it looked a lot worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. And the cameras were a lot more expensive, mm-hmm. though, than they are now. And only a few you, – you had to have – you had to know someone, if you didn't have money, that would work with you. You know, you, you didn't have the means of production so readily at hand. And now nowadays young filmmakers have that. And I think that's contributed to the explosion of films regardless of funding. Yeah. Because people are just saying, you know what? I'm going to go out and make this thing. <laughs> I'm just going to go make it. And I may not make any money on it. I may not get paid to do it, but I just feel like I got to do it. Tell me how you feel like over your career, your style has, has shifted. It tends to be pretty verite, I guess I'd say. You, you know, you follow the subject with the camera and you have straight talking heads and things like that. But you also occasionally will just have shots that are aesthetically beautiful or like in, uh, in America to me, you do a thing with the opening credits where uh, the title is sort of disappearing behind students as yeah. they move closer to the camera. And like that was, you know, that was just a neat little effect. So tell me about like developing your style. Well, you're right that that most of the films, if you know my work at all, the, the films that I'm most known for tend to be verite-driven. Uh, they may have some interview moments in them, but it's they're dominated by scenes. Um, and that's true of this series, too. For the most part, that's true of this series. One thing that's different about this series is, is that I knew going in that even though I wanted it to be verite-driven, that there were going to be sections of the film where it became more analytical and interview-driven and issue-driven. And we we don't do that often, but somewhere in most every episode, there, there's usually some point where we, what we tended to call in the edit room, a red meat section, <laughs> where we delve into a, a particular issue related to equity or, or race or education. And I like that because I feel like Verite does have its limitations mm-hmm. in that regard. But Beyond that, um, over the years, I have tended to, to take the approach that I want to be open and flexible 
aesthetically to what I feel like is the best way I can think to tell the story. So a film like Stevie, I'm in that film. It's a verite-driven film, but I'm also a character in it in a very significant way. A film like Life Itself, the Roger Ebert story, yes, there's some verite in it because we ended up following him the last four months of his life, but it's, it's you know, the overwhelmingly, it's a look at his entire life. And so I love the idea of stretching myself and, you know, Abacus was a courtroom story as well as a verite portrait of a family. So I, you know, a lot of my films have a lot of some of those verite signature things that I like to do. But I also don't feel bound to just keep making the same kind of film time yeah. after time. Well, we're kind of we're kind of headed into the end of our conversation here, so I wanted to ask. We kind of started by talking about what's so different about some of these teenagers now. What it, what is still the same about teenagers from when you were a teenager, <laughs> from when your parents were yeah. teenagers? Like, what is still the thing that is just across time always going to be true of teenagers? I, I think what's always going to be true is is that the teenage years are are years in which so many teenagers are really struggling to kind of figure out who they are and and what they think and, and what they think about themselves and what they think about their parents and what they think about the world. And I think it's why it's both an exhilarating time and it can be an incredibly painful time. I speak from experience on that one. But I think also the teenage years are characterized by, you know, new things, and whether it's like Grant kind of having a crush on the girl in badminton class and we then see how he awkwardly tries to figure out how he can ask her out. You know, when you see that in in the series, I think black, white, whatever you are, however old you are, you will remember what that was like to try and figure out someone you had a a crush on and what you were going to try and do about it or not do about it. And I think the series is full of moments like that. We didn't want the kids to just be in the series as sort of props or symbols of race and education. We wanted them to be full-blown teenagers who are going through all those classic you know, moments of what it means to be a teenager and to show you that. And that maybe part of the part of the revelation for I think for white viewers in particular, is to sort of understand and recognize that, as silly as this may sound, is is that a lot of what you felt and experienced as a teenager is felt by these kids as well, by kids who are black and biracial. They have other things they're dealing with that you never dealt with, but there are so many commonalities of the experience too that you can relate to, and I think that's a good thing for yeah. people to see. Yeah. Well, we end every episode by asking some of our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you one of those, and that is, who is the filmmaker, living or dead, that you learned the most from but you've never met? Jean Renoir. Really? Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I when I fell in love with film— it was back in college when I took a film appreciation class that was in the English department, and the the class was focused on great auteurs. And I was just falling for film and movies, and I heard it was a great class. And we so we looked at the work of Jean Renoir, who I'd never heard of um, at that time. And it took me a while to understand what made him so great, because Jean Renoir had an, an incredible kind of artless um, but poetic style, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But once I kind of 
got a sense of what that was. I was just really struck by his ability to kind of capture the complexity and humor and tragedy (laughs) of life in narrative cinema and to have all these things happening on so many different levels, both thematically and even within the frame, um, that I think that his work had a, a real profound impact on me when I then did eventually fall in love with documentary because I have tried in my own work, no matter how serious the work is, is to have it have that range of what it means to be human in it. And nobody, there's no more greater humanist filmmaker that I know of than Jean Renoir. Do you have one of his films you would you would recommend our listeners check out if they haven't? Well, there's a bunch, actually. But, you know, I mean, of course, there's Rules of the Game and yeah. Grand Illusion, which are the recognized classics. But, you know, films like Voodoo Save from Drowning is pretty terrific. Um, the Crime of Monsieur Lange, I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation, is a pretty great film. One of the first films we saw in the class was an early film called Tony, mm-hmm. which was just this raw sort of, you know, it almost looked like a documentary. I mean, it did look like a documentary. I don't don't think you can go wrong with much of Sean Moore's work. Steve James, the show is America to Me. It's on stars. To my mind, it's a must watch. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. You know what America means to me. It means I get a long weekend and hopefully so do all of you. I, of course, am Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. The show's producer is Bridget Armstrong, the executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich, and our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering is thanks to Ernie Hurtado of the Rebel Talk Network. We recorded this week's episode at the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills, California. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your fine podcasts. You can also email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, itii.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. And you can tweet at me at TVOTI Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with a special episode that describes how TV ratings work, which is a question I get so many times in my life. So we're going to get deep into the weeds on how those ratings work and how they determine what shows are renewed and which are canceled and all of that. But until then... Please renew your subscription to this show. Please don't cancel your subscription to this show. We appreciate having you around. Thank you. Hey there, I'm John. And I'm Darren. And this is Martinis and Murder. A weekly podcast that rehashes crimes, investigates new information, and ponders theories you may have never even considered. And we do it all while drinking. Because frankly, that's how most things in life should be done, right? Of course. From murders you've seen on the news to remote crimes in areas of the world you've never even heard of. We're the place for mysterious murders and creepy crimes. So hit that subscribe button to make sure you get new episodes downloaded every week. Sit back, relax, and get ready for Martinis Martinis and and murder. Murder. Ooh, this is good, man.